uh, Revelation, the book of Revelation. There we are, Revelation tonight. You know, it's a pretty exciting book. Kind of scary at parts, too. If you're not born again, if you're not saved and know the Lord is your Savior, the book of Revelation can be uh, a scary book. Before I was saved, I started reading some of Revelation. And uh, I, of course, wow, I thought, man, what's this? <gasps> I don't believe it. What's that? Oh, my. And it was... Um, very disturbing to me. Of course, the devil's there to try and disturb you, and I wasn't saved. But um, after I got saved, it made a whole lot more sense. The whole Bible makes a whole lot more sense after you get saved, isn't that right? Yeah, because it's kind of a closed book before you become born again. Well, uh, let's have a word of prayer once more. Loving Father, we're just pausing now to acknowledge your leadership, your ownership, your sovereignty in our lives. We thank you again so much that we can open the Bible. And Lord, we sure don't have all the answers. There are so many questions that we, we have that we wish we had answers for. And we know that in heaven we'll get all these answered, plus a whole lot more. But that's why we need faith. We need faith in you. Lord, increase our faith. Increase our faith in what you have to say in this book. Help us tonight to put more faith and trust in your book than ever before. And help us and remind us and empower us and encourage us to read it every day and to really make it part of our lives. Lord, help us now, please, as we study this uh, letter, this book to the, uh, um, uh, the church at Laodicea. Lord, please apply the, the truth of it to our hearts. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Well, let's see here. We've tried to make uh, a few comments on um, the seven churches and how um, they seem to mirror seven periods of church history. Now, folks, whether that was God's design or not, we won't know till we get to heaven. I've met Christians that get real vehement and they say, oh, there's no way you can know that. Oh, and they get all bent out of shape over that. Well, don't get bent over, out of shape over that. And you want to get bent out of shape over something? Get bent out of shape over the fact that the gospel is going out and people are hearing it and not getting saved. Get bent out of shape over something like that. Don't get bent out of shape over something that we're speculating on in the book of Revelation. That's kind of dumb. But, be as it may, I don't even know if you can see very clearly this, this chart from where you're sitting. I can't even read it all from where I'm standing. How about that? But we do have the seven churches pictured here. And um, we have the, uh, the church at Ephesus and Smyrna and uh, uh, Pergamos and Thyatira. And so these are kind of pictured here. The church at Ephesus kind of pictures the first century, the apostolic age, and it finished around approximately 100. I don't know why that says 160. In fact, I'm not sure if that's the right... Did you give me the right graph graphic? It seems to me I made some changes on this this afternoon. I'm not seeing those changes. Double check. Yeah? This is the, uh, the right file, is it? For chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. Yeah, just double check your figures on that. Either I didn't send it, or he didn't get it, or I sent it and he got it, and he's playing games with me, or I'm playing games with him. You see, that's what you want to get bent out of shape over, right? That's not worth it. <coughs> However, <clears throat> while he's figuring that out, um, let me just rehearse it for you that we've got these, what appear to be seven uh, ages. That's it. You are hiding it on me. That's the one. All right, let's take another look at this. Where was it? It was hiding, was it? Yeah, well, they kind of look alike, you know, seven brothers, and they all look alike. This is the seventh. 
All right, so we got our apostolic up to 100, 100 to 312. Why 312? Anyone know? That's when what? Something happened? Christianity was legalized. Right, it was made the legal religion in the Roman Empire. Up to about then. That's when the persecution stopped. And then we get into Pergamos. That's the mixed, the mixture. And that's when I think a lot of unsaved people started getting involved with the church. You say, why would unsaved people get involved with the church? I think it's because government money poured into the church and follow the money. That's why some people are tele-evangelists. Follow the money. They, they buy themselves million-dollar houses, and sorry, multi-million-dollar houses. Today, poor people pay million dollars for a house. But multi-multi-millionaires pay multi-multi-million dollars for houses. Price of houses today is crazy. And, uh, all right, something didn't go right here. Did you change this on me? All right, well, anyhow, we won't spend any more time on that chart. We've beaten that chart to death just about, I think. But you get the idea that there appears to be uh, a correlation, a parallel, sort of, to the seven churches and the seven kind of ages, if you will, uh, roughly speaking, over the last 2,000 years. Now, the seven letters to the seven churches tell us something about what churches were like by the end of the first century. They give us a lot of insight. And here's what I've, for the last month, every single day, uh, I've been pouring over and over and over and over and over and over and over the chapters of the book of Revelation. And uh, begging God and pleading with God for more insight and wisdom and making notes and notes and notes and notes and notes. And here's what I've come up with. Not much has changed in 2,000 years. That's what I've come up with. Because the churches today, you can see quite a parallel uh, between the churches today and the churches back then, 2,000 years ago. I believe that uh, these seven letters to the seven churches were real churches back 2,000 years ago. But at any time over the last 2,000 years, you're going to have examples of these churches. To just say that all of the churches for the first 100 years were like this, and all of the churches for the next 200 years were like that, is a big mistake. Because churches over the last 2,000 years have reflected all seven of these, uh, these churches here that we see tonight. And uh, here's what I found. Some churches back then, as some churches today, are doctrinally correct, but they've lost or they've left their love, their first love. Back then, like today, doctrinally correct, they cross all their T's and dot all their I's. Everything's all doctrinally correct, but the real love for Jesus. Something's missing. Something's gone. Sad. It's like when two people fall in love, they get married. Boy, they're all over each other. The turtle doves, right? They just love each other. And then given a few more years, they're still there. No more cooing. They still look at each other, but something's changed. Now, it doesn't always happen this way, but often, too often it does. Married folk that have been married a good number of years, they just take each other for granted. And they say, the honey is dripped out of the honeymoon. Well, that's what happened to the church at Ephesus, and that's what happens to churches today. That's why we always have to be preaching Jesus. We always have to be preaching revival. We always have to be preaching consecration. We always have to be exalting our Savior to keep our eyes on Jesus. Because if we don't keep doing that, we will fall or leave our first love. Something else I found was that churches back then, as churches today, are persecuted for their faith just like the church at Smyrna. Something else is churches back then, as churches today, can be mixed up with money and politics, like the church at Pergamos. Something else I've learned is that churches back then, like churches today, can be steeped in doctrinal error, like the church at Thyatira was. Churches back then, like churches today, can be pretty much just dead. Dead orthodoxy, like the church at Sardis. Churches back then, like churches today, can be holy and true and faithful, like the church of Philadelphia. And churches back then, just like churches today, can be very rich and worldly, 
like the church of Laodicea. And that's where we're going tonight. Folks, we're going to Laodicea. So, to the angel of the church of Laodicea. We're coming in here at the end. Now actually in verse 14, you'll notice that it doesn't say to the church of the to the angel of the church of the, of Laodicea it says unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans it's plural isn't that interesting that's interesting that it's plural uh, the one before Philadelphia doesn't say Philadelphians but this one says Laodiceans isn't that interesting no mistake there's a reason for it and we'll try and suggest that reason Now, of all of the seven churches, (coughs) boy, that was loud. I apologize up front here because I I will throw in a cough here and there uh, tonight. And unfortunately, it could sound like a bomb going off. So I apologize for that. So I'm about 98%, 97% out of the woods. Maybe 95%. Maybe 90%. I'm not feeling so good. So, of all of the seven churches, the church of Laodicea appears to be the worst. And uh, of all of the other churches, Christ usually had something good to say about them. This particular church, he doesn't have anything good to say about it. Can you imagine that? Have you been to other churches? Have you visited other churches? Have you? Over the years, you've visited other churches. And usually there's something good. You know, if you think about it, there's something good about each of those churches. Can you imagine a church where there's nothing good about that church? That's sort of what we have here, isn't it? Now, people question if this was a church of saved people or totally unsaved people. I I don't think it was totally unsaved people for a couple of reasons. Number one, because it's still pictured as one of Christ's churches. Christ wouldn't write a letter to you know a church that wasn't his. We learned earlier um, in one of the other letters to the churches that Jesus talks about the synagogue of Satan. Well, Jesus never wrote a letter to the synagogue of Satan, did he? But he did write a letter to the church of the Laodiceans. Something else is that uh, the church had a pastor, because it says, unto the angel of the church, of the Laodiceans. And we've talked long and hard about that. We're not going to rehash old ground, but the angel was the pastor. Rep- another word for the pastor. And so Jesus is pictured as holding all of these seven stars, which are the seven angels, in his hand. And so it seems to me that uh, at least the pastor was saved, probably a couple of other people in the church. But I would tend to have to um, concede on this point that the bulk of the people were probably not saved. That's pretty sad, isn't it? How a church could go that way. There was a famous preacher who uh, built a a church. He started the church, built it up to about 2,000 people. Um, Then he went off into uh, another line of work, Christian work, full-time Christian work. And then he got cancer and he died. But another man who took over his church stood up in a meeting and uh, said that when he took over that church, it wasn't long before he realized that most of the people in that church weren't even saved. Now that may come as a shock to us, but uh, that happens more than what we realize. Churches that have been built up on a, you know, a a big personality, someone who's got uh, tremendous presence in the pulpit and can preach so as to, cause the hair on the back of your neck to stand up and send a shiver up your spine and, and have you weeping down at the front. And he builds this church to hundreds, if not thousands. And he dies or moves away and sometimes half the church falls apart. What happened? What happened to those people? Well, in many cases, they're not even saved. You... Um, have to understand that this happens. And I think that we have a church here in Laodicea that may have been that way. So, anyhow, 
Let's talk a wee bit about the city. What kind of a city was Laodicea? Well, we've got it pictured on the map there for you. You can see where it is, and uh, I got another little close-up here for you. Um, Laodicea was a center of trade. It was a chief center in an area called Phrygia. It was situated in the Lycus Valley, about 45 miles directly southeast of Philadelphia. That's the next red dot you can see. Oh, oh no, there are purple, purple dots there, I guess. And it was an important city because it was located at the crossroads of three main highways and trade columns marched along those highways. Now, the, uh, the city was founded approximately 250 BC, give or take, whatever, something like that, by Antiochus II. And he named the city after his wife, Laodicea. That's how the city got its name, named after his wife. Um, it was a center of banking. Laodicea became a wealthy banking and financial center. In fact, it was the most famous banking center of that part of the world back then. But also Laodicea was a, uh, a center of fashion. Now you can't see much in that photo. You just see a lot of empty ground. <coughs> uh, that's because there's not much there. Something that uh, Laodicea had was um, uh, an aqueduct, which was real high-tech back in those days. It was a means of transporting water. And the Roman engineers had perfected this. They could transport water over miles and miles uh, using aqueducts. And they figured it out, their engineers figured it out, just the slightest little drop would get the water flowing. And so they built these things up and they were able to transport water over long, uh, long periods, long places. There's another picture of uh, uh, the aqueduct there. Now the city developed a certain type of wool that was, they say, raven black and glossy. And so Laodicea became famous for the sale of this wool. And it made the city residents very wealthy. So it was a very wealthy uh, city. I imagine real estate reflected that. Uh, the people became very fashion conscious. Uh, a few more pictures here. There's the ruins of what was once a beautiful stadium. Having a stadium in your city, again, is a sign of wealth and uh, money. So there's not much to look at there, just ruins, the stadium. Nothing but ruins. A few more ruins. If you were to go over to Laodicea, very barren ruins. Oh, of course, more ruins. And, oh, sheep amongst the ruins. And a bunch more rubble. And a few uh, visitors off on the left there. A few tourists. And there's something that they call the Ephesian Gate. And I'm not sure why. I don't know all of the history behind that. And again, that's kind of what you see. And here's a famous picture. You've probably seen this picture before. And of course, it's a reflection of uh, verse 20, isn't it? Of chapter 3, which we'll get to a little bit later. So the name Laodicea, uh, according to uh, linguistic scholars, means the people's rights or the will of the people. It seems that the people in Laodicea were very interested only if they personally profited from something. What's in it for me? And unfortunately, there's a lot of people like that today. They'll only go someplace, they'll only do something if, if there's something in it for them. I've seen over the years people that are church shopping and they hop from church to church and what they're looking for is, okay, what, what church is going to give me the most? Where am I going to get the biggest bang for my buck if I happen to put in a buck? What, what, which one of you churches can, can scratch my back the most? And this kind of attitude you don't want in a church, really, because the church is not so much what can I get out of it, but 
What can I do for it? That's the better attitude. Here's the church. The Lord's in the church. Lord, how can I serve you? That's a good attitude. Otherwise, it just becomes, oh, I don't know, like maybe hunting for a job. Who's going to pay me the biggest salary? Who's going to give me the most benefits and blah, blah. And unfortunately, the people at Laodicea seem to to develop that attitude. And I don't know, maybe it's because of there was too much money in the city, possibly. But the church at Laodicea reflected the people of Laodicea, and they seem to be no better. Now, we, we don't know how this church got started. We don't know who started it. We don't even know why they started it, or even what it was like when it was first started. But my guess is that it, was, it wasn't too bad. That's my guess. Because Paul referred to Laodicea, Uh, in the letter to the Colossians, somewhere around 60 A.D., give or take. So at this point, at at 95 A.D., 96 A.D., when John wrote Revelation, the church at Laodicea could have been like 40 years old at that point. But going back to maybe 60 A.D., it may have been five years old or something. In uh, Colossians 2.1, Paul wrote, For I would that ye know what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea. And in chapter 4.15 in Colossians, he writes, uh, greet the brethren who are in Laodicea. So I'm only guessing, but and I'm hoping, that the church was pretty good back in Paul's day, that it had a lot going for it. Now, Laodicea was only a few miles away from Colossae. So maybe someone from Colossae went and started the church in Laodicea. We don't know. But after 35 years or so, it appears that the church fell apart and had become rotten. I think most of the saved people that were around in Paul's day had died by the time John wrote his letter and a new crowd had taken over. Quite possibly, most of that new crowd was not even saved. So the church of Laodicea seems to picture a very worldly church with a large uh, unsaved membership in it. It may say church on the outside, but it's not church on the inside. Let's put it that way. There were worldly people. You know, I found it interesting that there are companies that have a name that's misleading. For example, if if I said to you, U.S. Robotics, you might think of little robot machines that they manufacture. Not so. They make modems for computers. And yet they're called U.S. Robotics. I found um, a company that, I don't even know if it's still around, but it's in, in Los Angeles called Savage Boat Works. Can you guess what they do? I'll give you a hint. It has nothing to do with boats. Savage Boat Works Uh, used to, anyhow, make parts for airplanes. So this church, it may say church on the outside, but it's not church on the inside. I think the main reason we know is because Jesus is not on the inside. He's pictured as being on the outside. Isn't that interesting? Now Christ introduces himself in verse 14. So let's go through this together. Under the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now when Jesus introduces himself as the Amen, the word Amen means truth. Or we could say it means so be it. Which is a good confirmation of, uh, of strength, of a promise or a statement. If someone says, Jesus saves, you ought to say Amen. If someone gets a victory in their lives, you ought to say, Amen. That's a good Christian response to something positive. Why does Jesus introduce himself as the Amen? Quite possibly because Jesus is the guarantee of all God's promises. In 2 Corinthians 1.20 it says, For all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him Amen, unto the glory of God of God by us. Someone wrote a little 
song. It said, every promise in the book is mine. Every chapter, every verse, every line. I'm standing on his word divine. Every promise in the book is mine. And that's true. God wrote that Bible for each and every one of us. And you can read every page and every line. And God meant it for you and for me. In church, I think when you hear something you agree with, you ought to say amen. Amen? I was wondering who'd amen me on that there. So Jesus is the amen. But the church of the Laodiceans did not rely and depend on Jesus. They trusted in other things. Jesus revealed himself as the faithful and true witness. Let me ask you this. Did you know that God wrote the Bible? Did you know that? Yes or amen? And did you know Jesus is God? Yes, he is. So in the Bible, we learn of the faithfulness of God. In 1 Corinthians 1 and chapter 10, it says God is faithful. And the fact that what he says is true. And Jesus said in John chapter 8, uh, yet my record is true. And in John chapter 14, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so Jesus is introducing himself to this this church as faithful and true witness. But the church at Laodicea was neither faithful to God, nor did they bear any uh, true witness of Jesus. Uh, he, he introduces himself as the beginning of the creation of God. Now our uh, J-Dub friends, they love this verse because they misinterpret it and they, they try to say that it, they try to make it say something it doesn't say. And they try to say that Jesus was the first creation of God. It says so right here. The beginning of the creation of God. See that they say? They say that God first created Jesus. That's not what this verse says. That's not what Jesus is saying here at all, at all, at all. It, it doesn't mean that. Well, what does it mean? Well, the word beginning, the root word is begin. And the word begin literally means about to open up. That's what the word begin means, about to open up. When you add ing, you turn it into what grammarians call a participle. That's an action word, and it has the features of an adjective to it. Okay, now we're smart. When Jesus calls himself the beginning, he is referring to himself as the one who is about to do the opening up of the creation of God. Or in other words, the one who did all of the opening up. It doesn't mean that Jesus was created by God. It means that Jesus did the creating. That's what it means. So that's important that we, we know that next time a J-Dub knocks on your door. Well, John 1.3, you can jot that down. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1.16, all things were created by him and for him. The Laodicean church prided themselves on having so much of everything. And they didn't even realize that it was Jesus saying, Hey, everything you have, I'm the one who created it. I'm the one who allowed you to have it. Now we would never make a mistake like that, would we? At this point, in the letters to the other churches, Christ usually says something good about them. But as I noted earlier, Christ says nothing good about this church. Look in verses 15 and 16. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Wow. That's strong language. He never said that to any other church. Not even the dead one there. Oof. Those are strong words. Their works that came out of this church were neither hot nor cold. Now as you know, there are some things in life that are designed to be hot. Name me some of them. What, what should be hot? What kind of food or drink should be hot? What's that? Coffee? What else? Salsa, did someone say? Pizza. Yeah. Anything else? Hot chocolate. Hey. 
Good thing it says hot chocolate on it. These things are designed to be hot. What are some things designed to be cold? Ice cream. Ice. (laughs) He's not wrong, is he? What else? Soda pop. Yeah, you get the idea. You want your pizza hot and your ice cream cold. But if you sat down to eat and your pizza was just room temperature and your ice cream was room temperature, your coffee was room temperature, your soda pop was room temperature, you wouldn't want to eat it, would you? You'd say, oh, wow. And that's the condition we find. Now, do you remember you saw pictures of the aqueduct? Apparently, um, there was a, some kind of spring of water that provided cold, cold water uh, out of the ground. And uh, the church, I'm sorry, the city of Laodicea had benefit of that because of the aqueduct. And so, um, you know, if that, if that water came out uh, lukewarm, people would, ah, what's this? When you're tired and hot and thirsty, what seems to taste better? A drink of cold water or lukewarm water? Most people, I think, would say cold. It's refreshing. There's something about it. The Lord here, He was interested in their works, but He was not interested in them being lukewarm. And uh, uh, He said here that He was going to spew them. That means to discharge the contents of the mouth. He doesn't say vomit. He doesn't say, I will vomit you, because that would be something from the stomach. He said, I will spew you. That's something from the mouth. Hey, something that uh, um, maybe you didn't know this, but water spouting, water spewing used to be um, a very sought after form of entertainment hundreds of years ago, especially in the, uh, the courts and royalty. They would bring in uh, men usually that were very experienced. They could hold up a cup and spew the water right into the cup. And the, the court would applaud. And then they'd hold up two cups and two streams. And now I've, and I was never there, but I've read that some of these guys could do four streams of water out of their mouth. How they ever did it is beyond me. But they had cups sitting there and they'd four streams. Well, they're spewing But you never see that on America's Got Talent these days, do you? That's not a sought-after commodity, I imagine. However, Jesus said, I will discharge you. I will spew you out of my mouth. I found it interesting in Leviticus 20. It says, Ye shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my judgments and do them, listen, that the land whither I bring you to dwell therein spew you not out. Isn't that interesting? You'll find so often things from the Old Testament popping up in the New Testament. Some people say, ah, the Old Testament, that's outdated. It's only for the Jews. The New Testament, that's all we want. You're missing out. You need the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. Every chapter, every page, every, every paragraph, every line, every word. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Very important. So who are these, uh, who are these lukewarm people that Jesus was going to spew out? Could they have been Christians that Jesus was going to spew out of his mouth? Could they have been Christians? Well, Jesus said in John 6.37, Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. So I doubt he's talking about Christians. So I kind of think he's talking about the unsaved in the church at Laodicea. It, uh, the cold ones, we might say, well, those are definitely, they make no pretense about it. They're not saved. They're not interested in being saved. They want nothing to do with God. Absolutely not interested in Jesus. They're totally cold. The hot ones would be saved. They love the Lord. They're honestly trying to live for Jesus. But these lukewarm ones, or we might say slightly warm ones, I think they're not saved, but they've warmed up with a little bit of religion. That's what they've got, is a little bit of religion. They profess what they are not. 
They profess they're Christians, but they're not really saved. They may have prayed the sinner's prayer, but they're still not saved. They may know how to look on the outside when they come to church. Uh, they may know how to, uh, what to say and how to act, but on the inside, they're not saved. Like we said earlier, what it says on the outside is not what it is on the inside. The church of Laodicea may have said church on the outside, but it sure wasn't a church on the inside. Now we get to the self-deception here uh, of this crowd in verse 17. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Look at that. But here's the self-deception. They, they, they thought they were so well off. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increase with goods and have need of nothing. Well, Jesus said here, truth is, and the very first adjective he used is wretched. You're wretched. Say, what is that? Wretched means afflicted. It means enduring toils and troubles and misfortune. And yes, they had a lot of money, but they didn't have Christ's peace, did they? And isn't that true even today? So many people that have a lot of money have no peace. You hear about that every now and again from wealthy people and sometimes people in the Hollywood entertainment business. Um, my wife and I watched a documentary recently on, on a famous Hollywood lady. She, she died a few years ago. And uh, wow, she was at one point riding the crest, the talk of the town. She had everything, everything. But as you dug deeper into her life, you realized she was miserable and lonely. And she went from marriage after marriage, divorce after divorce after divorce. So many men she married and divorced. There was kids in there too. And come even near the end of her life, she was cutting all her, her kids off and everything. She, she lived like the life of a hermit. It was really sad. Really sad. She made so many mistakes in life. And in some ways she seemed to be a nice person. But wretched. They don't have Christ's peace. In Isaiah 57, it says, But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. I believe that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. I believe that He alone can give us peace, even during troubled times. Jesus said in John 14, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, Neither let it be afraid. If you're experiencing fear or the wretchedness of, of uh, loneliness, then uh, you need Christ's peace. Unsaved people do not have the peace of God. Behind many of those beautiful doors of those beautiful mansions live lives of strife and unrest and anxiety. Wow. Well, the next thing he says, he calls them, is miserable. Not only were they wretched, they were miserable. To be miserable means to be very unhappy. The world is actually uh, miserable, I believe, these days. Uh, the world has no peace these days. Every day the news is carrying some new story of some insanity going on somewhere. But the, here's something interesting. The word miserable actually comes from the word miser. How many have ever heard the word miser? Raise your hand. Oh, that's most of us. And what is a miser? If we called someone a miser, what, what would we be meaning? They probably live alone and they save all of their money. They hoard it all up. It's as if money is their only friend. And Jesus was calling these people miserable. All they had was money. If all you got is money, you're in pretty bad shape. You really are. So many people with money have killed themselves. So many people with money have gone and done the most outrageous, crazy things. What were they thinking? The Laodiceans said they were rich, but really they were unhappy misers. 
Jesus called them poor, of course not in money, but in spiritual riches. In Luke 16, Jesus said, If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? He said in Mark chapter 8, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and yet lose his own soul? The Laodiceans were not saved, by and large, because they were spiritually poor. He called them blind, obviously not physically, but spiritually blind. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus spoke a parable and he said unto them, Can the blind lead the blind? Shall they not both fall into the ditch? I'm reminded of the song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. There's one of the adjectives. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Before someone gets saved, they are blind. They're not able to see the truth. And it's the truth that shall set you free. And these poor folks here at Laodicea, they were not saved because they were spiritually blind. They were spiritually poor. And then he calls them naked. Not physically, but spiritually. Not clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Remember, Laodicea was a fashion center of the world. It had a whole industry built around their fashion. But in the eyes of Jesus Christ, they were walking around naked because they, had, they weren't saved. They didn't have His righteousness clothing them. And they were spiritually naked. They were spiritually blind. They were spiritually poor. These are all telltales of people who are not saved. Now in verse 18, he counsels them. He says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. So on the basis of these last three adjectives, poor, blind, and naked, Jesus now counsels them to buy gold. That's the true wealth. In the Bible, gold is often symbolizing God's righteousness. And the Laodiceans were desperately in need of that. He counseled them to buy white raiment for true clothing. True riches, true clothing. Uh, Over in chapter 19 of Revelation, it says, And to her, meaning the church, was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. The Laodicean church They had no righteousness, no good works. They had nothing. Um, All they had, they were lukewarm. They weren't anything like the the previous church at Philadelphia. And then he counsels them to buy eye salve for true sight. True riches, true clothing, and true eyesight. Salve was an ointment used for tired, sore eyes to comfort and help people see better. By the way, uh, a couple of years after, or a, maybe a year after I, w- I was married, uh, I was complaining to my wife about my eyes being so t- sore. And she said, oh, let's put tea bags on them. And I really thought she was, you know, telling me a joke. I thought that, oh yeah, right, I'm going to put these tea bags on my eyes. Then she's going to take a picture of me. And then she's going to wait 20 years until they invent the internet. And then she's going to post it on Facebook. Well, no, she was serious. And I said, where did you hear that? She said, from my mother. Her mother taught her this, that when your eyes get real tired and sore, you get warm, moist tea bags, and uh, not dripping wet, but just, you know, moist, warm, and you put them on your eyes and you lay down for a while. So I thought, just to humor her, just to humor my wife, I thought, all right, I'll try this. And so I lay down, all right, lay it on me. And so she went and diligently got a couple of Tetley tea bags and warmed them up and squeezed out most of the water and put them on my eyes. And about five minutes later, took them off and I could see. (laughs) My eyes felt so much better. It was like eye salve is what it was. And so ever since then, I've never questioned anything my wife has ever said. I believe that the uh, word of God, the Bible, is the best eye salve on the market. I don't think you're going to get any better eye salve than the Word of God. Reading the Bible, studying the Bible, letting your eyes pour over the pages allows a Christian to see the things God wants him or her to see.
It's the best eye salve on the market, folks. Now, verse 19. Jesus admonishes them to repent. A true repentance. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Now, this is another reason why I think that the church was, although in miserable shape, the worst of the seven churches, it was still one of his churches because he loved them. And he was rebuking them. He was chastening them. And he didn't do any of that to the, you know, the synagogue of Satan. But he does it to his churches. Listen, if Jesus is putting you through a time of chastening, it's because he loves you. That's why. He cares about you. And he wants to help correct some bad behavior or something that's going to hurt you down the road. And so he's chastening. As many as I love, he said, I, I, I chasten. So verse 20, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. I don't believe at this point he's talking to the church as a whole because he's now uh, talking to any man. The offer is not being made to the whole church to repent. It's being made to the individuals, if any man. And so we find that uh, in Revelation 22.17, the spirit and the bride say, come. I think the bride there is the church or any of God's saved people on earth imploring unsaved people, reaching out to unsaved people. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. And I think there's a salvation invitation in Revelation 22.17 that can be compared to Revelation 3.20. This verse here, I believe, makes a good application in our soul winning when we're talking to unsaved people. To help illustrate where Jesus is. He's not on the inside. He's on the outside. And he's knocking on their heart's door. Now you say, wait wait a minute right there, Pastor. Where does it say here that the door is their heart? I've heard these things over the years. There's nothing new. It just gets repeated over and over. I believe the door here is the door of their heart. I'll tell you what I base it on. Galatia, sorry, Genesis chapter 4 and verse 7. God said, If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. He's talking to Cain. God is talking to Cain. In Egypt, they took the blood and they applied it to the doorposts in Egypt. In Exodus 12, for the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he seeth the blood upon the lintel and upon the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come in unto your houses to smite you. Now you might say, well, wait a minute, time out. That was a literal door. I know it was, but it pictured salvation. When the blood is applied, the angel of death passes over. And when you and I have the blood applied to the door of our hearts, you see the angel of death. That's our Passover. You understand? I believe that the door spoken of here is an individual invitation from Jesus to every sinner at the church of Laodicea. I stand at the door and I knock. And by the way, salvation is always an individual invitation. It's always to the individual. He says, I'll come in to him and will sup with him. And sup speaks of the last meal of the day. You know, there's still time for people to open the door of their heart. Did you know that? Do you know anyone whose heart is like a closed door to Jesus? They're not saved. Do you know anyone? A neighbor? Someone at work? Someone at school? Maybe a relative? Maybe that person lives under the same roof as you do. But there are lost people all around. And there's still an opportunity. This is still a day of grace. What we need to do is we need to get on the bandwagon and help out Jesus. And we need to start giving out more gospel tracts. We need to take advantage of the Christmas time and invite people to come to church. People come to Christmas events at Christmas. 
That's what a lot of people do. We've got the Christmas uh, musical this Saturday night and Sunday night. It's not too late to start inviting a few more people. See what you can do. If you're not sure who you can invite, why don't you ask the Lord to show you? Lord, show me who I can invite. Tell me, I want to do your will. I want to invite someone. And before you know it, the Holy Spirit will bring a name or a face to your mind. Then go and invite them. And say, hey, you doing anything Saturday night? No. What do you got in mind? Our church is putting on a fantastic musical. They do this every year. It's a great Christmas presentation. Would you like to come? We'll sit together. Yeah, sure. There you go. They'll come. They'll hear the, the, uh, the gospel in music and in the spoken word as well. So I'm just saying, we need to get on the bandwagon. Verse 21 is the promise here of eternal life for those that get saved. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame, and am set down with my Father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. I think, maybe my opinion only, but Laodicea pictures the church age these days. We've got a lot of buildings that say church on the outside, but is not church on the inside. We knock on a lot of doors, our soul winners do. And sometimes they talk to people that say, oh yeah, I go to such and such a church. Well, that doesn't mean they're saved, does it? And we encourage our soul winners to go ahead and take the next step and ask them. And so, does that mean if you died, do you know for sure, for sure you'd go to heaven? Or do you still have some doubt? And it's amazing how many church-going people will answer, well, I hope I do. Um, I think I would. I, I'm not sure why I wouldn't. But no, I'm not 100% sure. Folks, let's learn a lesson here. The Lord Jesus is still knocking on the, the, the doors of a lot of hearts all over the world. Let's you and I help Him with that business. Shall we? Amen to that? Let's pray together.